0: Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Radio Network. Let's, go! Let's go! Broadcasting from coast to coast, city to city, coast to coast, it's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's, it's happening, happening in, sports, in sports, it's being talked about right here. Right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Ryan Hickey. Hickey.
1: Good Thursday morning. Welcome into the Worldwide Sports Network. This is the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here, coming off of what was an insanely busy, extremely chaotic hump day yesterday. Holy smokes! I hope you're sitting down. I hope you had a lot of time to digest everything that went down yesterday because it was just story after story after story. We're gonna hit it all, or at least try to, here in the next two hours. Debo Shemio wants out. Of San Francisco, big mistake on his part, but also we'll discuss if he is going to be traded. There's only one team in my mind that makes sense for the 49ers to send him to. We'll tell you who that team is. We had a tremendous game number two last night between the Celtics and the Nets. Uh, now, Boston up 2 nothing in that series. We'll discuss the biggest reason uh, for the Celtics going so far up 2-0. A very surprising, shocking retirement by Jay Wright at Villanova. Why, let's just call it for what it is. This is now going to be the norm. Coaches now retiring earlier and more unexpectedly is going to now become more of a trend, more of a pattern than not. You had Joel Embiid with the buzzer beater. Like I can go on and on and on, but you get the point. It was a crazy, chaotic, fun night and day really in sports. So we got a lot to get into. So why waste any more time? Let's go. We are coming to you live, as always, from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Now, whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. The Celtics are up 2-0 on the Nets so far for one reason, in my opinion. Their defense. Their defense so far through the first two games, and specifically on Kevin Durant, is the biggest reason why the Celtics won game one and the biggest reason why the Celtics fouled that up last night with a victory and and to now go up 2-0 in the series. Because I know today, a lot of people will be bashing Kevin Durant. A lot will be pointing to his stat line, which is very, very ugly. But the reality is, this to me is more about a great Celtics defense locking down one of the premier scorers in the NBA rather than Kevin Durant kind of just having right now a, a really bad series and being in a slump. Because if we look and go back to Sunday really quickly in game number one, when Kevin Durant goes 9 of 24 from the field and turns the ball over six times is really bad, we could chalk that up. And I think if it was just one bad game, that would exactly what it would be, right? A bad game. Every single star has him. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Michael Jordan. It doesn't matter who the player is. Every single athlete in sports has a bad game here and there, even in the playoffs. So if Kevin Durant yesterday came out, was scoring a ton, looked to be efficient, was confident, was scoring, it kind of looked like the old Kevin Durant, you could chalk uh, Sunday up to like, okay, fine. Bad game, it happens, and you can move on. But now the fact that for the second game in a row, Kevin Durant was shut down, this is becoming a pattern. And so for me, that's why I'm crediting the Boston defense for shutting down one of the best scores in the NBA. I'm not really putting a lot of this on Kevin Durant. He's been bad. He's missing some shots. But for me, the reason why he's missing shots, the reason why he's been so inefficient from the field these first two games is because of the incredible job the Celtics defense has done. And they have by far a clear strategy on how to guard Kevin Durant. It's been obvious and it has worked to perfection. They are doing so in two ways physicality, and relentlessness. That's it. That is the only reason why they're shutting down Kevin Durant. It's because they're being extremely physical with him, and they are not letting Kevin Durant get an inch of space or feel any sort of comfort on the court at all. Because ever since the ball tipped off for game number one on Sunday and so far carried through the final whistle of game number two, every single second Kevin Durant's been on the court, a Celtics player or two has been right up in his face right up in his grill, whether he's been at the top of the key, whether he's in the mid-range, whether he's trying to shoot from the free throw line, whether he's driving you know, to the rim and trying to get a bucket in the paint. Hell, whether he's bringing the ball up, whether he's coming off a screen, whether he's on the bench, whether he's in the hotel room, it doesn't matter. This Celtics team, these defenders, have been like white on rice with Kevin Durant any single time he's even in the vicinity of TD Garden. They have not given him an inch of space. They have pushed him around. They have, you know, kind of tested the limits of what refs will call fouls, but they have been physical and they have been relentless in always pressuring Durant, always being there, always having a hand in his face, and again, not even allowing him an inch of of space to get comfortable to get a shot off, and it has worked to perfection so far. Kevin Durant has looked flustered. We've seen him so far through these first two games, an unorthodox inefficiency uh, from the field from KD. It has so far been perfection, and it's not too complicated. They've been physical, they've been rough, and they have just been, again, that relentless mentality of just always being there, fighting over screens, fighting through screens, sprinting, and always you know tracking KD. And the biggest reason why he, again, struggled get in Game 2, and the biggest reason why right now the Celtics are up 2-0 in this series. Because even if you look at last night, the free throw attempts should tell you all you need to know about the Celtics' strategy. Last night, Kevin Durant, by himself, attempted 20 free throws, not in the first two games of the series, not as a team, the Brooklyn Nets had 20 free throw attempts, Kevin Durant by himself in Game 2 alone. 20 free throw attempts. So what does that tell you? Again, they are being physical as possible with KD. Even though the refs were calling more fouls in game two than game number one. They weren't letting as much go late as you saw at times in game number one on Sunday. But for the Celtics, their philosophy, their strategy didn't change. And frankly, I think it's the right one. Send Kevin Durant to the line. Have him try to beat you from the free throw line because it's a lot easier to beat the Nets. And it's a lot easier to contain Kevin Durant, when he's being forced to go to the free throw line, rather than give him the space that he needs to operate. Continue to be physical. Continue to make him uncomfortable. Because guess what? Even though they're calling fouls, even though you're putting Kevin Durant on the free throw line 20 times or he made 18, that is the best way to still contain him. To slow him down and slow down this Nets offense. Because so far through the first two games, these two physical relentless efforts from the Celtics defense has led to something from Kevin Durant we rarely, rarely see in the playoffs. And that is back-to-back bad games. Right, If we look at game number one, he was 9 of 24 from the field. Just very inefficient, very unlike Kevin Durant. I said on the show on Monday, don't expect that game again from KD. We expect a lot better performance and a more vintage Kevin Durant come game number two in the postseason. Well, how did he follow up game number one? By going four of 17 from the line last night. Or from the from the field last night. Four of 17. He made just four field goals yesterday. He goes from nine of 24 to just four of 17. That is the sixth time. Sixth time. In Kevin Durant's postseason career, that is he had two straight games of sub 38% from the field and where he got worse from one game to the next. Kevin Durant, who's been in the NBA for 14 seasons, he has played in 153 uh, playoff games. The one thing he has been known to do throughout his entire career, and again, 14 years, 153 playoff games. That's a massive sample size. The one thing Kevin Durant has been consistently able to do in his career is bounce back from a bad game. Again, everyone has bad games. And if it's just one game, you chalk it up to that. But we rarely, like I just outlined, see Kevin Durant have a bad game and then get worse the following game. That happened on Wednesday night coming off of Sunday's uh, tough game. And the Celtics defense deserves all the credit in the world for making Kevin Durant's life hell on the court. Kevin Durant always rebounds from having bad games. And instead of Wednesday, he got worse. The four field goals he made were the second fewest shots from the field he's made in his postseason career. You got to go all the way back to 2011 when he was a member of the Oklahoma City Thunder when they played the, the Memphis Grizzlies. Kevin Durant in that game went 3 of 11 from the field. That is the second worst or that is the worst game Kevin Durant has had in his career in terms of field goals made. In a game. And last night we saw Kevin Durant make four field goals. He went 0 of 10 in the second half from the field. That is, according to ESPN stats and info, the most field goal attempts without a make in a half in Kevin Durant's career. What we saw last night was an historically bad performance from Kevin Durant. But for me, I put a lot of the emphasis on that to the Boston defense. I don't think he's he's playing this bad because he's in a slump. He's playing this poorly because the Celtics defense isn't giving him an inch of space. They've been masterful so far in how they've defended Kevin Durant. And as we've seen, that's a massive issue for the Nets because when Kevin Durant struggles, there's no one else they can consistently rely on to get points, get stops, and help uh, churn out victories. Kyrie, coming off his 39-point unconscious game in game number one, went just 4-13. Couldn't follow up what he did in game one and game number two. Couldn't pick up his teammate in KD, who struggled for a second straight game. Bruce Brown, to his credit, was tremendous yesterday. He was one of those role players the Nets needed to step up in order to have a chance in this series, and he did that to his credit. But also to Bruce Brown, let's call it for what it is. He's not a playmaker. He's not someone that could take over a game because he still needs the ball to be facilitated to him. A lot of his points come in the paint uh, and within five or ten feet. Hit a few three, uh, hit a few threes for sure, but for the most part, he is not someone who could create his own shot. Goran Dragic had a nice first half, disappeared in the second half. So the Nets, we talked about their top heaviness going into the series. Why well, it was a reason why I didn't like the Nets in the series and I did not think they were going to get out of the first round. And we saw their top heaviness for the second consecutive game come back and bite them. Because if they don't have all-time games from KD and Kyrie, there's no one else you can rely on on this team to get you through. And on the flip side, when you look at how the Celtics played yesterday... The Celtics relied on the defense a lot, and that was one of the reasons why they won. But also, they had great contributions from up and down the roster. Like, uh, Jason Tatum, tremendous in game number one. He really struggled in game two. He was just 5 of 16 from the floor. He was missing a lot of shots. He's very inefficient. So it's not like the Celtics had a, this great performance from Jason Tatum to put them over the top. He really struggled. But what the Celtics do really well and the nuts struggle with is depth of scoring. Having other guys step up to contribute to when your best players not playing well or having an off night, you can still win games like the Celtics did last night. Credit Jalen uh, Brown, who stepped up big time, twenty-two points in the game, including ten big points in the fourth quarter as the Celtics were making their comeback and eventually took the lead they did not relinquish. But it wasn't just Jalen Brown because he's you know right there with Jason Tatum, one and one as you know in terms of stars on this team. But you had Peyton Pritchard. Compute with eight fourth quarter points. Al Horford really stepped up nicely all game long. So you were getting contributions from guys like Payne Pritchard, from Al Horford, other guys on your roster that are stepping up to help you out and bail you out when your star like Jason Tatum struggles to be efficient from the field like he was in game two last night. Out of the eight players, the Celtics had play minutes last night. Seven of the eight scored 10 or more points. So again, you have contributions and legitimate contributions from almost everyone on the roster who played yesterday boston was able to find a way to win despite jason tatum struggling because they had depth that brooklyn doesn't have and they have defense that right now has put kevin durant in a blender that has made kevin durant's life hell on earth but i don't think that's changing We could sit here and talk about Kevin Durant and his struggles and him needing to be bitter and needing to make more shots and needing to carry this Nets team. The reality is the reason why he's struggling has more to do with the Celtics defense. Their uh, physicality, every single second of Kevin Durant, uh, always having a body on him, always having a hand on him, bumping him around, making his life hell, and their relentlessness. Always having a hand in the face. Always being right there. Not allowing KD, whether he has the ball or not, to have an inch of space to get a shot off. They have been physical. They have been relentless. Those are the two reasons why Kevin Durant has struggled mightily in game one. Got worse in game two. And the biggest reason why, right now, the Celtics are up 2-0 in the series. Their defense. Defense in the NBA still wins championships. And the Boston Celtics, so far through the first two games of the series, have put on a clinic. And have showed you that exact reason why. So I'm going with the Celtics here and their defense. I'm crediting their defense. Every single player on the roster, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Al Horford. everyone is, has been guarding Kevin Durant and they all have done so to perfection. So I'm choosing to look at this scenario so far in terms of looking at it from crediting Boston's perspective, what they're doing, rather than bashing Kevin Durant and saying, ah, oh, he's just, he's playing terrible. He needs to step up. But how about you? Are you putting more of the blame so far for the Nets being down 0 2 in this series on Kevin Durant for struggling? Or are you going to give credit to the Celtics and their defense for doing what was and what has been so far a hell of a job for the first two games on one of the premier and elite scores in the NBA? I'd love to get your thoughts here on Facebook. You can comment on Worldwide Sports or Eric. The, the show is also live on our brand new show page, The Ryan Hickey Show. So make sure you check us out on Facebook. The Ryan Hickey Show is is live. It has the stream of the show. You can throw us a like there, follow the show, and also comment your thoughts on game number two so far there. We're also on Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, or WWSRN underscore radio. And we're on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Is the series over? Can the Nets come back down 0-2? Or is this going to Boston? love to hear your thoughts. And when we return... Debo Samuel has made his trade request public. He wants out of San Francisco. Is he making the right move? We'll discuss when we return this into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports, World Sports Radio Network.
0: Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: Ryan Hickey Show with you on this Thursday morning on the Worldwide Sports Ryan, I appreciate you tuning on in and joining us here on this very busy and loaded Thursday. So let's just call for what it is. Let's just shoot you straight. Let's not even beat around the bush. Debo Samuel is making a massive mistake here in requesting a trade away from the 49ers. I think this is one of those classic lessons he's going to learn in Fortune the hard way that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And wherever he ends up getting traded to, I don't think he's going to have as much success as he had with the 49ers on whatever new team that he ends up getting traded to uh this offseason. And the confusing part and the concerning part is the reason why he wants a trade away from the 49ers. And that's to me one of the biggest reasons why I think he's making a massive mistake here. So Ian Rappaport, tremendous NFL network reporter, gave some background as to why Debo's frustrated. He said Debo wants out because he's frustrated uh about his usage and how the 49ers deploy his talents. So we can assume from that since last year he was a wide receiver and a running back, especially you know more running back at times in the postseason than receiver. We could take that as he wants to solely be a wide receiver. He does not want to be a hybrid player anymore. He does not want to, you know, be lining up in the backfield and taking handoffs like a running back. And that's Frustration to me doesn't make much sense because let's just call it for what it is the role he played last year for this 49ers team perfectly suited his talents. It literally is the perfect role for what he does well. He is a massive physical wide receiver, he is a massive lower body, he's insanely strong. So yes, he has tremendous wide receiver talents. He is quick, he's fast, he's powerful, but he also has a skill set to where he is a very physical runner and kind of being able to be in that hybrid role made him so dangerous and made him so unguardable. Like the reason why is you see the wide receiver market exploding, right? Where Tyree Kill gets $30 million a year and Devonta Adams, you know, reset the market uh, before Tyree Kill, $20.5 million a year. Receivers now, as we are seeing these last month or so are getting paid. The receiver market is exploding. Now Debo Samuel wants to capitalize on that, but for him to get a big payday, he's going to get $25 million a year, let's say at least. Well, the reason why he's getting a massive payday is because that flexibility is because he's such a dynamic player and is able to play in multiple positions, move around the field and be unguardable. Like, I don't think he has enough production at just the wide receiver position in order to command a huge payday. Yes, his 1,400-yard season last year, he was tremendous. He was one of the best receivers in all the NFL. But the reality is you also now are getting paid on your body of work. And through the first three years of his career, Debo Samuels had one impressive season at receiver. Because if you look at so far through the first two seasons of his career, if you go back to 2019 when they went to the Super Bowl, the 49ers did, and 2020, Debo Samuel, as a receiver, averaged just 54.2 yards per game. So even though he had the breakout and explosive year this past year, the first two years of his career, he's been in the league three years, first two years of his career, the majority so far of his NFL career wide receiver, he averaged 54.2 yards per game. Does that scream $25 million a year receiver to you? Does that say, let me break the bank for Debo Samuel because he is a guaranteed you know production uh, player? No. The reason why he would get $25 million a year is because of his ability to be a walking mismatch. Line up outside. Line up in the slot. Line up at running back. Get jet sweep handoffs. There's a reason why this guy is so dynamic and almost like a... a, a um, Jack of all trades, if you will, is because of his body, his build, his ability. He was, and along with Kyle Shannon, were able to exploit mismatches uh, all throughout the game. Like Debo Samuel, to me, is one of those players I view as just get the ball in their hands and let them do the rest. Right? Some players, like Stephon Diggs, we know are tremendous route runners. And you know they'll get open in a phone booth just because the way their footwork is and the way they get in and out of breaks. We know guys like Tyreek Hill are burners where hey you throw deep he's running under it no kick keep up. Debo Samuel is one of those players where it's just get on the ball. It's almost kind of like high school where sometimes you had you know the best athlete play quarterback just because you want the ball in their hands and to make plays. Debo Samuel last year we saw him at his finest when Kyle Shannon just got the ball in his hand. Whether it's you know a, a running a route, deep route, over the middle, short screen, handoff, jet sweep, Kyle Shannon was extremely creative in just getting the ball in Debo's hands and letting him do the rest. So that is who he is. Whether he wants to embrace it or not, he is one of those players that is just dangerous with the ball and let him go and make plays. And you look at even last year for the tremendous receiving yards he had at 1,400, Debo Samuel, to underscore how flexible you know, he is position-wise and how dangerous he is just when you get the ball in his hands, he had six receiving touchdowns last year. He had eight rushing touchdowns just last year. First receiver ever to have more rushing touchdowns than receiving touchdowns. So that should underscore how unstoppable he is in the role that he plays. Just get on the ball and get out of the way. So having after having success in that role... After being one of the most dynamic players in the NFL, after always having some sort of mismatch on the field, whether he's matched matchup against a linebacker that's he's faster than, a safety that he's stronger than, a corner that he's bigger than, Debo Samuel, along with Kyle Shannon and the way they deployed him, was able to feast on these mismatches every single play. And now, now, after he had that extremely productive season, after he embraced being a wideback. He basically invented a brand new role and embraced the name and went with it. He called himself a wideback. Half receiver, half running back. He seemed okay with it to me. I mean, we were watching those games. Did he ever look disgruntled that he had the ball in his hands? That he was getting a handoff? Didn't look like it to me. When you call yourself a wideback, you say, oh no, I'm not a receiver. I'm a wideback. Seems like you're pretty okay with how you're being used. But now, after all that success that Debo had last year, after seeing that success leading him to getting a a payday with the 49ers, wanting to give him a contract, Debo's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm now a receiver. Drop wide back, drop running back for my bio. I am now strictly playing receiver. That, to me, is a mistake. It's a mistake, and I think he's, personally, I think he's making too much uh, of the running back, and he's overblown the situation. Because let's call it for what it is, right? The reason why he doesn't want to be a running back anymore, just be a receiver, is because he's worried about the workload on his body, right? We have seen running backs, their shelf life in the NFL is very short. They do not get second or third contracts. And your rate of injury is exponentially higher at running back than it is really anywhere else. But the reality is, even last year, even for how dynamic Debo Samuel was, his usage rate was not that high. It wasn't like he had the ball in his hands every single play. Last year, he had 77 receptions, which are ranked 24th in the NFL. He had 121 targets, which is 23rd in the NFL. So it wasn't like he was getting the ball thrown to him a ton anyway, where he was this massive workhorse. He had 59 rushing attempts in the regular season. So when you average the receptions and the rushing attempts, if you average that out over 16 games, Debo Samuel had the ball in his hands whether it's catching the ball or uh, rushing the ball, about eight and a half times per game. That's what it averaged out to. Is eight and a half times per game having the ball in your hand really that strength, like that uh, alarming? That taxing on your body? I don't really think so. I think Debo sam is making a bigger deal uh, about being a running back than really what is there. Because the reality is, those 59 rushing attempts that Debo Samuel had in the regular season, that averages out to just about three carries per game is three carries per game really a deal breaker in your mind if you're Debo Samuel as to wanting to leave San Francisco a team that outside of the quarterback right now is built to win a Super Bowl we don't know what Trey Lance is going to be I think Trey Lance will be more good than bad Um, but you look around the rest of the roster defensively they're set offensively they're set this team is Super Bowl caliber from roster spots two to 53 taking out the quarterback so if you're Debo Samuel. You are really going to get that upset about three rushing attempts per season and now want to go somewhere else? That to me is a dangerous game and very short-sighted. He's making a mistake. Just think about it. Now, if he wants a trade, he is playing a very dangerous game here because the odds are, most likely, he is going to be on a bad team. Because you're looking at right now the high asking price for Debo Samuel, which you would assume would bare minimum be a first-round pick. Him needing an extension, by the way, so you need draft capital and salary cap space in order to acquire and sign Debo Samuel, that eliminates a lot of teams. So when you look at right now, Fox uh, Fox Bet yesterday listed the betting odds for the top five teams to land Debo Samuel. Now, interestingly enough, they had the 49ers basically keeping Debo as a betting favorite. But the five trade destinations that they had as a top five were the Jets, the Colts, The Packers, the Falcons, and the Saints. If you're Debo Samuel, you really want to leave San Francisco to go play for the Jets? To go play for the Falcons who are tanking right now? To go even play for the Saints and Jameis Winston? Like, I think for the betterment of his on-field production, for the betterment of his wallet, he is better off sticking in San Francisco and assuming the role he played to perfection last year. Because he is going to get paid this offseason. The 49ers want to pay him. And the only way, if you're Debo Samuel, you get a third contract or midway through that second uh, second contract, they rip it up and give you a brand new extension. The only way that happens is if you produce. And right now, the only year you had where you truly had tremendous and elite production was when you were a wide back. When you were both a receiver and a running back. Where Kyle Shanahan devised a system to just say, get in the ball. Here, Debo, here's the ball, go make a play. That continued production is what is going to get him paid again. So if you go to the Jets, then you go to the Falcons, I'm sorry. I don't think number one is going to be nearly as dynamic. I don't think for him just playing receiver is going to mean now he's going to be one of the best receivers in the NFL. And I don't think right now going to another team and limiting your role is going to get you paid again. You can get a second contract, which you're going to get from whatever team trades for you, but that's it. So I think he's making a mistake. I think he's better served staying in San Francisco, thriving in the hybrid role, and going to try to win a championship with the 49ers team that is currently right now, again, outside of quarterback, set up right now to be one of the contenders in the NFC. So I think Debo's is making a big mistake here. Like I said before, I don't think the grass is greener on the other side. And he's playing a dangerous game here with wanting out and wanting to limit his role. And basically, eliminate what he did so well last year that set him up to get this big payday that he's going to receive from either the 49ers or another team. I think Debo Samuel's making a big mistake. How about you? Should he stay in San Francisco? Would you want your team? If Debo Samuel is just going to be a wide receiver who did have a 1,400-yard season last year, but in the first two years of his career, averaged just over 50 yards per game, do you want your team giving up a first-round pick for Debo Samuel? Love to hear your thoughts here on Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can tweet us at Ryan Hickey Show, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, and comment on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio networks. love to hear your thoughts. Would you want your team trading and uh, signing Debo Samuel to a lucrative long-term offer when he's just going to play running back and not be able to utilize all the multiple talents and dynamic athletic ability that he showed last year and playing so many different roles for the 49ers offense? So, love to hear your thoughts here. And when we return, big shocking news that Jay Wright is retiring from Villanova. But this is a trend that is only going to increase. We'll explain why when we return to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
0: It, it, the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: 20 minutes from now on the Ryan Hickey Show. Suns are in trouble. Bucks are in trouble. We will uh, discuss why that is. But big shocking news yesterday. Villanova head coach Jay Wright, college basketball legend, icon, one of the faces of the sport we have seen over the last two decades, shockingly retired. And the reality is Jay Wright retiring in what is right now the peak of his coaching career. It's going to become more of a trend uh, for coaches moving forward than ever. It is is shocking, don't get me wrong, it is very surprising, I didn't see it coming, I don't think anyone saw Jay Wright stepping away right now when he has Villanova humming, but it makes a lot of sense, because right now, coaches are getting burned out. There's a reason why we saw Sean McVay, who in his 30s, coming off a Super Bowl, was flirting with retirement and reportedly at least considered leaving coaching for a little bit in order to start a family and go to TV. We saw Sean Payton walk away from the Saints. Said he'll return to coaching, but he needs a break right now. He stepped away. Whether he ever does return to coaching or not, we'll see. But he needed a break. He decided to step away. So Jay Ryan leaving, even though he has Villanova right now at a consistent level that it's really, especially in his career, he's never really had up until the last five, six, seven years. It's going to become more and more and more of a trend because burnout's a real thing. And whether it's the stress, whether it's the just the, the hours, it takes a toll. And with the money being as high and as great as it is, walking away earlier has never been easier. Like, think about it. For Jay Roy, who's, like we said, had an insanely successful career and right now is at his peak it got to be too much. The stress, the job, the hours got to be too much. He's a two-time national champion head coach. He has four Final Four appearances in his career. Three have come in the last six tournaments. Villanova has had a, is a program right now that has been one of the most consistently dominant programs within the last decade. Jay Wright has turned a small school in Pennsylvania. In a one-and-done era, but still winning with three- and four-year guys that don't really go to the NBA too often, and don't have a ton of success, he has built a program of stability. And now he has that place humming. Like we have seen in sports, especially in college sports with recruiting and it being kind of easier to get kids once you build something, once you build it, sure, sustaining it is almost kind of the easy part because now when you build a culture of winning, when you have consistent success, kids want to go play for that. And Jay Wright has built himself, uh, built Villanova up into one of those blue blood programs where kids want to go play for. So when you are a consistent winner, when you are, again, winning at an insanely high clip and a consistent clip, like Jay Wright has has done the last six, seven years, it is easy to recruit kids. It is easy to get talented players buy into your program because you can just point to the uh, consistent success. Look at Bill Belichick with the Patriots. There's a reason why the two decade long dynasty, we'll call it, they had lasted as long as it did. Because the players would cycle in and out, but players would want to take less. Players would want to go to New England and they would buy into the Bill Belichick unorthodox system because he can point up to the rafters and say, hey, look at those six rings. You don't you don't think that this is best for you and you don't think this drill is, is going to help you? Well, look up at the sky. There's a reason why every single Bill Belichick clone, where they wherever they have gone, have all failed. There's a reason why Matt Patricia goes to Detroit, tries to you know make Detroit, New England, West, and it doesn't work because Bill, because uh, Matt Patricia points up to the rafters, there's nothing there. He's done nothing on his own as head coach to warrant players buying on it. Players, whether it's professional or college ranks, they buy into winning, and so Jay Wright building Villanova up into a consistently winning program, nothing you can coast ever. But his job is easier in theory than it's ever been, and it's still got to be too much. Coaching is tough, man. It is one of the hardest things. It's even harder than playing because the hours you put in, the 24-7, 365 grind that it is, gets to be too much that even the successful coaches, even the ones who have a a system and program running uh, at top speed, it's overwhelming. Like the pressure, I will say, the interest in sports has never been higher, right? Whether it's gambling whether it is just now access to games, whether it's just, hey, the more fans have more access to games and they are, they are into it, and sports right now, wherever it is, whatever league it is, have never been better. But with that flourishing of the league, with sports right now being more talked about and more prevalent than ever, with a lot of the money and attention, eyeballs, being paid to watch these games, we are now seeing the pressure to win be greater than ever. Right? So with that pressure to win, with that insane intensity every single day to always try to be better, always try to get a step ahead of the competition, it's draining. And coaches now are starting to say, you know what? I've had enough and I can't fault them. Like, especially when you look at college coaches, college football and college basketball, man, that is not a profession that is built for longevity. It is amazing what Roy Roy Williams, what Coach K have been able to do for so long because it is draining recruiting is always nonstop. stop or you're always trying to get the best kids and get them away from Kentucky, Duke, Carolina, Kansas. The recruiting uh, trial and the recruiting battle never ends. It's 365 24-7. But now, especially in college sports, when you add in the transfer portal, which I think is a good thing for college sports, but what it does is basically has to now have these coaches re-recruit their kids every single year. You can go to the transfer portal, you can transfer whatever you want, one time, free, no sitting out. So now, if you have a talented player, you get in, but doesn't play a lot in his first year or he doesn't like the role he was being used, you now as a coach have to re-recruit the players on your roster just to stay there. So the recruiting trail is hard enough. Traveling to go see kids, trying to wow you know, them and dine them to come to your school like Jay Wright is doing at Villanova. But now you have to also re-recruit the kids on your roster already to make sure they don't leave in the transfer portal. NIL again, I think another thing that I think is tremendous for college sports. Kids deserve to get paid. These schools and universities and the NCAA make so much money off of their back, off of their play that the kids absolutely deserve uh, the money that comes their way. But that adds another challenging dynamic that coaches now have to overcome. Whether it's jealousy from other players, whether it's making sure you know the 18-year-old doesn't let the million dollars they got get to their head. It's exhausting. It truly is a lot. So there's never really any time to relax if you're a coach. There's never really any time to even enjoy your success or enjoy time with your family. Like it truly is a grind 24-7-365. And rightfully so, we are seeing more and more coaches realize, you know what? The balance is not, you know, what I want. The work-life balance for all of us is really tough. But when you are a coach that's been as successful as J.R.R., when you have a schedule that is basically go, 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 we are going to see the burnout come back and get him. And I think J.R.R.R. making the right call here. He, to me... Deserves everything he's getting. And I do I do buy that he's done coaching. I don't believe he's someone that, you know, is going to go back on his word. I don't believe he is someone that will flip-flop and say, oh, I'm going to retire. Oh, yeah, by the way, then I'm actually going to go coach another team in college basketball or go to the NBA. I do think he's done. When he says he wants to spend time with his family, I buy it. Because, again, we just talked about for really two decades just as a head coach, but really 40 years of Jay Wright in the coaching profession it is go, 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 go. You're never with your family. You're always on the road. You're always recruiting. You're always re-recruiting. You're watching film. You're at practice. You're you're watching practice film. Like, the, it never stops. If you ever hear coaches talk about, right, one of the one of the answers in press conferences that drive at least myself crazy is, oh, I can't answer that question. I got to watch the film. Now, fair, right? You don't want to overreact in the moment. Hey, I got to go back and re-watch the tape. We hear coaches after the game say that all the time. Uh, I got to go back and watch the film. I'm not sure yet. But the thing is, they're not lying because as soon as the game ends, as soon as the press conference is over, they are going back to re-watch the film. They don't go back to the hotel and go out. They don't go back to their house and and go to sleep and wake up the next day. They are breaking down film. They're already getting ready for the next game. They're trying to figure out the practice plan. Like It, again, is 24-7, 365. So there's no downtime. There's no ever time to just even relax and take a breath. So we are going to see, I think, more and more coaches now just get Done and sick of this schedule. The money, you know, coaches getting paid more and more money now so you can retire earlier. And even whether it's needing a break or just calling it quits, we will see more coaches now that are successful at the height of their careers either step away or retire. And if you're Jay Wright, too, not to mention being 60 years old, which by the way, I mean, God bless him. The fact that that schedule is grinding, he looks as good as he does. Looks like he's 40 years old. But Part of the reason why you work is don't you want to work to live? Work to have some fun? At 60, you want to enjoy life. Hang around your family. Go do things in in the wintertime you've never been able to do before because of basketball. You want to be able to work and have a successful career, which Jay Wright has absolutely done. But you also want to have fun doing it. So credit to you, Jay Wright. An insanely successful career is now hanging up at Villanova. I don't think he's going to coach again. I don't think he's going to the NBA. I don't think he's going back to college basketball. I think he is true to his word. He's not someone that I think that would make a decision like this and just walk it back or use retirement as a way to get out of Villanova in order to take a different job. I think he is truly done. I think he's going to enjoy life. We'll see him definitely on a TV set for sure. He is going to be living the life now for the rest of his career. I am jealous. Congrats to you, Coach Wright. Insanely successful career. And one of, by far, the best coaches we've ever seen in college basketball. I do want to mention one thing here as we wrap up our number one in the Ryan Hickey Show. And that was the insane, incredible performance from Joel Embiid last night as the Sixers take a 3-0 lead on the Raptors. drop 33 points, and it's the game-winning turnaround three, with just .7 seconds left in overtime to give the Sixers the victory. Now, I will say this, because Joel Embiid basically took the same shot twice. He ended with the game tied in regulation, decided to take a step back fadeaway three. And although it's a tiny bit different, basically had the same exact shot later in overtime. Number one, I give Embiid a lot of credit for taking that shot again. Now they had not have a lot of time on the shot clock, so it's not like he just you know dribbled there and, and that was a shot that he wanted. But the reality is he takes a lot of credit to throw that shot up after missing it and doing it again. But for Embiid, the one thing I will say, He made the shot, all the credit to him, 32 points, dominant, 6 up 3-0, they're going to go to the second round of the playoffs. My upset pick of the Raptors taking on the Sixers in the first round is dead. It's dead. But for Embiid, the one thing I will say is when you are 7 feet, when you are dominating down low in the first two games the way he has against the Raptors, where they had no, at one point, basically Nick Nurse had no option but to just foul him, just hack a shack, but not because Joel Embiid's not making free throws, it's because they just can't stop him down low, I want to see Joel Embiid with the game on the line in regulation not settle for a step-back fadeaway three-pointer. You're seven feet. You're dominating down low. Do it. That shot at the end of regulation does bother me. I will be honest. Now, he made up for an overtime again, and he made a three, so credit to him, and you know you can shove it where the sun don't shine, at least in my opinion. But for the Sixers going forward here, you need Embiid in those situations to be driving down low, go to the basket, use his physicality and his frame to finish the job. Settling for a step-back three-pointer is a massive, massive win for the Raptors. If you're Nick Nurse, I'm sure he'll tell you that every single time. Even though Embiid hit the shot, even though there was little time on the shot clock, that's a shot you'll prefer for Embiid to take literally every single time. To his credit, he made it. Congrats. But how you draw it up if you're Nick Nurse on defense is exactly how it played out. You want him taking a fadeaway three-pointer at the buzzer, and you want him taking a turnaround three like he took in overtime. I think you'll live with that. Now, you obviously, you want to win the game for Nick Nurse, but you will live with those results, I think, 10 times out of 10 because that's the only way you can slow down Embiid. He can hit threes for sure. Don't get me wrong. He's a very good 3 point shooter. He spreads the floor well. But with his size with the ability for him to dominate down lows he has the first two games— You want to see him use that frame and and go to the well one more time. That's just my advice. That's my thoughts coming out of that game yesterday. Big win for the Sixers. They're up 3-0. Embiid makes a shot. It's an insane, you know, great, great shot. But the reality is going forward, how when you're playing the Heat, most likely in round number two, if you get by them, you're playing the Bucs, you're playing the Celtics, you're playing the, you know, we won't even say the Nets. You're playing the Celtics or the Bucs. You need to use that physicality, and again, you can't be settling for fadeaway threes with the game on the line. You can't trust James Harden to hit the last shot. Tyrese Maxey's been incredible, but as we've seen so far, even though with how great he has been, the ball has been in Embiid's hands so far in these late game moments. You got to drive to the hole. You got to be able to finish, you know, at the rim and use your body to dominate down low. I hope this is a learning experience for Embiid and the Sixers. I don't really trust Doc Rivers and his um, tendency to not really make many changes. But that is what I will say about Embiid hitting the game-winning shot. Tremendous shot, credit to him. He came back after missing one, drained it in overtime, up 3-0, series over. But going forward, you'd like to see Embiid use that physicality down low a lot more often than he did. When we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, the Bucks—they're in trouble. They lose last night and suffer an injury that could be even more impactful than just the loss itself. Same thing with the Suns. Suns, Jazz, and Bucks—all three of those teams suffered brutal Game Two losses. But for the Finals rematch that I thought we were going to have in the Bucks and Suns, that is in jeopardy. I'll explain why when we return us into the Reiniky Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to The Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: Well, it is a Ryan Hickey show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. My pick before the NBA playoffs started, I mean, to be honest, most people's pick before the NBA postseason started was that we were going to get a finals rematch of Suns-Bucks in the NBA Finals. I had the Suns winning and winning their championship. A lot of people the Suns winning uh, the finals this year. But the reality is, as we sit here, both heading into now game number three on the road, the Bucks and Suns are in trouble. They're absolutely in trouble heading into game number three of their opening round series, but they're most importantly in big time trouble in just getting to the finals alone. Forget about winning it. Let's start with with the Bucks here. They lose game two to the Bulls last night. The bigger concern moving forward, though, for the Bucks is that Chris Middleton suffered a sprained MCL. He left the game, did not return, and we are waiting on further results today that will truly show the severity of the MCL sprain and kind of give us a timeline of when Chris Middleton could return. It seems unlikely he could be back anytime, at least in terms of this series, uh, anytime soon in the opening round series. But the reality is the Bucks need Chris Middleton back by uh series number two you need chris milton back by the eastern conference semifinals because they are not getting past the celtics right now in the east that second round matchup right now is going to be Bucks celtics celtics is going to beat the nets and i do think even though they lost last night the bucks are going to beat the bulls i think honestly last night quickly about game number two that was a wake-up call from milwaukee they slept walk through game number one i don't think they truly learned their lesson because game number two they're equally as sloppy I think actually losing a game now to the Bulls kind of wakes it up and reminds me, oh, this is a real team. I know the Bulls have not beaten a good team all year long. Now I think the respect and the attention level does turn out for Milwaukee. They will take care of the Bulls. I will say six games. So I have no doubt in my mind the the Bucks will get past the Bulls. I think the Celtics will take down the Nets. That sets up a conclusion course 2 3 of Celtics Bucks in round number two. And if you have Chris Middleton either out for this series or severely limited with his sprained MCL, the Bucks are cooked. The Bucks are absolutely cooked if Chris Middleton is not back and let's say functional at seventy percent on the court. Because you now look at the Celtics and this swarming defense they have played so far through two games against Kevin Durant, where they have ooh sorry, where they have locked up Kyrie Irving in game number two. They're number one in defensive rating in the NBA. You no, know, yeah. By the way, now we're getting Robert Williams back at some point in the postseason, unlikely in series number one against the Nets. But at least right now all things are trending towards him returning for the second round series against the uh the Bucks. So you already have a great elite defensive team in the uh in the Celtics. Now getting their best defender back in Robert Williams most likely for round number 2, that is going to be a tough challenge for Giannis, especially now when he doesn't have a Chris Middleton to pass the ball off to and get open looks to. So for me, the Bucs absolutely need Chris Middleton to be healthy and functional if they are going to advance just past the second round. To be honest, I had no really doubts in my mind the Bucs are going to get to the finals. I thought the only team standing in the way was going to be the Celtics. But right now, excuse me, with the injury his, or the injury right now being unclear of Chris Middleton how much time he'll miss and how you know how effective he'll be when he returns, that is concerning. Because the Celtics right now are playing great basketball. They, they have the ability to you know get contributions from all throughout the roster. Defensively, as we see, they are swarming. I don't think the Bucs are beating the Celtics in round number two if Chris Middleton is either not playing or severely limited. So you truly, if you are the Bucs, are in trouble right now because your injury history or the injuries that have been popping up are not favoring you right now. It's, they are in big trouble. The Bucs, who I thought were going to walk to the finals, are now in, in real danger of not even making out of the second round of the playoffs. And the Suns are the same way. The Suns, in my opinion here, should be extra cautious when it comes to Devin Booker. He has a hamstring strain. And unlike at least um, what the Bucs are going through, because the Bucs are going to be in a gauntlet second round series against the Celtics, the Suns have a little bit more leeway. The Suns do have a little bit more of a runway to get Devin Booker back and kind of slowly make sure he's fully healthy. Because I think they'll take care of the Pelicans. It was a nice win by New Orleans the other night. I do think even without Devin Booker, who's going to miss games three and four, I think the Suns will beat the Pelicans shorthanded. I think they'll get by either the Mavericks or the Jazz. Whoever wins that series, I think the Suns, even without Devin Booker, will win that series. So you need Devin Booker back realistically if you're the Suns by the Western Conference Finals. When you take on either Golden State or Memphis. But in order for the Suns to win the finals. In order for the Suns to even just get to the finals, they need Devin Booker healthy and on the court. I get right. Phoenix is one of the most balanced and deepest teams in the NBA. You can make the argument. They are by far the most balanced and the deepest NBA team this season. But this is going to be a different story. This is going to be a different task. when We're talking about taking on a Memphis team or a Golden State Warriors team in the Western Conference Finals if you are without Devin Booker. I get when he missed uh, seven games earlier this year when he had a hamstring strain on the other hamstring, his left hamstring. This one's the right one. Last year, or earlier in the year, I should say, he had a hamstring strain on his left one. He missed seven games. The Suns were 5-2. and two. When Chris Paul missed 15 games with a fractured thumb, the Suns went 11-4. and four. Right, So they have won games in the past when guys like Devin Booker and Chris Paul have missed time. Again, deep balance. But we are now talking about the playoffs. I think it's a different animal. And you are looking at these two teams in the Grizzlies and the, and the Warriors that are playing some of their best basketball. And I don't think right now, if you are without Devin Booker in in the in that Western Conference Finals against either the uh, the Grizzlies or the Warriors, I don't think the Suns are winning. I don't. So it's imperative right now. The biggest thing these Suns have to do is be cautious with Devin Booker and take your time. I would absolutely hold Devin Booker out even longer than he should be in order that when he returns, he is fully healthy. The hamstring injuries, as we know, are always fickle, right? The last thing you want to do with a hamstring injury is rush a player back and only have him hurt it more. According to Walsh, right, he said uh, that the hamstring strain that Devin Booker suffered is mild. He's expected to miss at least games three and four in New Orleans, but we're going to find out kind of more uh, as we go along here. But, for me, if I'm the from the Suns, even though it's a mild hamstring strain, my number one goal is to not make that injury worse. So I'd be extra cautious. I'd hold him out of the rest of the series against this, uh Pelicans, no matter what. And I'd frankly hold him out even w- well within or even all of the second round series against either the Javs or the Mavericks. Because I would, right now, again, your finals hope, your ability to win a ring is contingent upon Devin Booker's health. We saw how unconscious he was in game two before he got hurt. He could take over a game, and he is that star the Suns absolutely need. But if you rush him back, and he gets hurt and now is out for the rest of the postseason, they're not being the Grizzlies, and they're not being the Warriors. Like You look right now, the Warriors, it's, I know it's short. It's a two-game sample size. The opening round of the playoffs is just getting underway. We're not even a week into the postseason. The Warriors, though, to their credit, through two games, have been the hottest team in the playoffs so far. Steph is back, coming off the bench. He looks like he has no rust. He barely looks like he's injured. Clay is hitting threes again. Jordan Poole picked up right where he left off in the the regular season. He averaged 26 points a game when Steph was out. Steph comes back, and now Jordan Poole is even more dynamic and more efficient with another splash brother on the court. This Warriors team is very, very, very dangerous. And the Grizzlies, I know they had a rough game one, but game two, I think, truly showed you who they are. This is an extremely good defensive team. They have playmakers all throughout the court. They live in the paint. They can score. They can defend with the best of them. This, to me, is a Grizzlies team that's going to be a hell of a matchup for the Suns. And if you are taking on either the Grizzlies or the Suns in the Western Conference Finals without Devin Booker, Suns are not winning. I get they've been balanced. I get they have tremendous scoring all throughout the roster. I get they have floated when Devin Booker's missed time early in the year and when Chris Pauls missed time early in the year. But we are talking about now taking on a Red Hot Warriors team or a very deep and hungry Memphis Grizzlies team. without your best score in the postseason. I think that is truly where you would feel the hurt if you're the Suns. So take your time with Devin Booker. Your priority number one should be make sure this hamstring injury doesn't get any worse. Take your time. Hold him out the rest of this Pelican series. Hold him out either even in series number two against either the Jazz or the Mavericks. Because so Let's call for what it is. If the Jazz do win this series, I do not trust them at all against the Suns, even shorthanded. I think the Suns would win that one. We've seen the Jazz multiple times now in the playoffs lose to shorthanded teams they shouldn't. And the Mavericks, Luka Doncic should be coming back, maybe by game four, possibly by game three is a long shot. But the reality is though, is that Luka Doncic, even when he does return, is not going to be 100%. That calf strain still seems to be bothering him. And who, he might not be 100, he's 100%. He probably won't be 100% throughout any point in the playoffs going forward. So you can, for the Suns, beat a Mavericks team with a banged-up Luka, and you can beat a Jazz team without uh, Devin Booker. You're not beating, though, the uh, the Warriors. You're not beating the Grizzlies, and you're not beating the Bucks or the Celtics if you make it to the finals without Devin Booker. It is imperative that Devin Booker is healthy for this team, which is why I would take my time. Extra rehab, extra rest, and even if he's ready to go, let's say, let's just say game two of the next round, he's ready to play. I'd hold him out an extra game or two just to be safe because again, once you get Devin Booker back on the court with these hamstring injuries that we know do flare up and do kind of only get worse, not better, as James Harden, you want to make sure that Devin Booker's not thinking about it. And really that the injury risk of him hurting it again is minimal to none. So the Suns are in trouble if Devin Booker can't play. If Devin Booker cannot return for the rest of the playoffs, these Suns are not winning the finals. They're not making the finals. So the number one priority for Phoenix the rest of the postseason is to ensure Devin Booker's health. Take your time. Hold him out even longer than he needs to be. Again, I would sit him the entire rest of the first series. I would sit him, even if you had to, the next series, the entire next series against either the Jazz or the Mavericks. And I would make sure he is healthy and ready to go come Western Conference Finals time when you're facing either the Grizzlies or the Warriors because they are going to need Devin Booker to go off and be that score, elite score like we have seen so far in this postseason and last year as well. Take your time, Phoenix. It is not worth the risk. Of rushing him back, because if Devin Booker hurts his hamstring even more than it already is, your season's over. Speaking of season being over, one last thing I want to hit on really quickly here. The future of the Jazz is at stake this postseason. Losing game number two. We we said, what do we say on Monday show? If you don't remember, welcome. But we said game number two, Monday night for the Jazz was a must-win. Even though they won game one, even though they're on the road. Game number two is a must win for Utah because without Luka Doncic out of the lineup again, you need to take advantage. You need to end the series. Going up 2-0, going back to Utah for game number three, in which Luka Doncic was doubtful to even play to begin with, you can end the series going up 2-0. You're going back home. Luka's still not going to play. You take any sort of belief or hope away from the Mavericks and you squash that right away. And you most likely end any chance of Luka coming back in this series. Instead, instead, Jazz lose game two, unable to guard Jalen Brunson. He goes off for 41 points. Maxi Kleba, hello, eight three-pointers coming off of an all-star break where he, from the all-star break to the rest of the regular season, could not hit water from a boat from three. All of a sudden, finds a fountain of youth, drills eight three-pointers on Monday night. And you now give this Mavericks team hope. Luka most likely won't play in Game 3. We're just saying it's it's very likely he's going to return in Game 4. So Game 3 is now relevant. Because whether the Mavericks win or lose, this series is still right there for the taking. you were either up 2-1 with a chance to get Luka back and take a commanding lead in the series. Or you're down 2-1, but your best player is now coming back. You give now, by losing Game 2 if you're the Jazz, you give this Mavericks team hope and belief that they could still win this series. We have seen this Jazz team before lose to banged-up teams. We saw them last year when the Clippers lost Kawhi Leonard with an ACL injury. What happened? The Jazz lost the series. So if you lose again, if you now end up losing this series to a banged-up Mavericks team who didn't have Luka Doncic for at least, we believe, three games and when he returns, I'm even still skeptical, uh, skeptical about how impactful he'll be. You, I think, are going to set up your team for having massive changes this offseason. Because now we've seen for the third year in a row the Jazz have success in the regular season, falter in the postseason. This team, call for what it is, is not built for the postseason, and I think changes will be coming. We've already seen Quinn Snyder's name rumored for replacing Greg Popovich with the Spurs whenever he retires, rumored to be you know, uh, in the Lakers head coaching search. If you're Quinn Snyder, I think he's, he's top, Six, seven coach conservatively in the NBA. I think he's a great coach. But you kind of throw your hands up and say, you know what? Nothing else I could do. The roster, the way it's constructed is just not built for postseason success. So you could lose potentially Quinn Snyder this offseason if you lose to the Mavericks in the first round. You can open the door for Donald Mitchell forcing his way out and either trying to blow up the team to get rid of Rudy Gobert or him saying, you know what? I'm done. Get me out of here. I want to go elsewhere. This is going to be, I think, the offseason from hell. If the Jazz can't win, at least this series, bare minimum this series, and opening the door, which they did by losing Game 2, could set themselves up for a a just humiliating first-round exit. Game 2 is a must-win. They absolutely did not win and did the one thing they could not afford to do, lose. Give the Mavericks hope, which now they have. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Bucks dealing with an MCL injury to Chris Middleton. Suns dealing with a hamstring injury for Devin Booker. Can either the Bucks or the Suns still make the finals if their stars are either not playing or compromised for injury? Love to hear your thoughts. What is the futures? How how big how much trouble? Easy for me to say. Good thing I don't get paid to talk for a living. How much trouble are the Bucks in uh, and the Suns in right now? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You could tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show, or comment on YouTube Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As a reminder, the 10 o'clock hour is always sponsored by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions. So make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. So make sure you check out LCDesignsNYC.com lcdesignsnyc.com for more info. She ships, so it's not just a New York City local-only event. She ships nationwide. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. When we return, we hit on Debo Samuel and his future before. I think it's a massive mistake that he wants out of San Francisco. But if the 49ers grant his trade request and he does get moved, I think there's one team he's going to get traded to. The only team I think that has a real chance of landing Debo Samuel, I'll tell you who that team is when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
0: Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Moved to LA,
1: Sometimes. As you welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, you got to watch what you wish for, right? Sometimes, whether the grass is not always greener, you don't always really, when you go through with a request, it doesn't really work out the way you think. And for Debo Samuel, he is forced or he has requested a trade away from the 49ers. I think personally, it's a big mistake. I think he should stay in San Francisco and embrace the role he's in. He wants a trade. And what we say is, you know, always watch what you wish for. I think there is one team, if the 49ers do grant um, Debo his request to do trade him, I think there's only one team he's getting traded to. It's the New York Jets. The only team I think that's going to trade for Debo Samuel is the New York Jets because it makes all the sense in the world from the 49ers perspective. Because the Jets have the three things the 49ers desperately need right now. Draft capital, salary cap space, and motivation to do the trade. Now, you look at what the Jets have so far in the first round. They have picks numbers 4 and 10. So they have two premium top 10 picks in the NFL draft. We know they're motivated because they were very aggressive in pursuing Tyreek Hill. They've been rumored to be very interested in Debo Samuel, in DK Metcalf, in A.J. Brown. So the Jets have made no bones about it. They are interested in, in the market for acquiring a true number one wide receiver. So if you're the 49ers and you're going to trade Debo Samuel, you just say, fine, you know what? He's not gonna sign here. We're not gonna lose him for nothing um in the offseason if he, you know, if we don't trade him now and try to force him play on the final his deal. We're gonna just get it over with now. Number one, the 49ers have to, absolutely have to get a first round pick in this year's draft. You gotta add talent around Trey Lance. You cannot trade one of the best and most dynamic weapons on your team and not get an asset that can replace him right away. So for me, getting a first-round pick in next year's draft is is a is a deal breaker. Absolutely no way. So the Jets obviously have a first-round pick this year, but it seems like for me the Colts, for example, who don't have a first-round pick this year, who I've seen you know r- rumored in, at least betting-wise, odds-wise near the top of the teams that are listed to get Debo Samuel, you absolutely, if you're the 49ers, cannot trade him to the Colts because you cannot wait a year for a first-round pick. You don't have one of your own. You got to get a first-round pick this draft in order to get some weapons around Trey Lance immediately to have him have the best chance of succeeding. Trey Lance is going to have a lot of pressure on him, fair or unfair, coming in with a Super Bowl roster, coming you know into a team that was led by Jimmy Garoppolo, had his deficiencies, and still got this team to an NFC title game. There's going to be high expectations for Trey Lance coming in right away. So you want to make that transition as easy as possible for him. Well, in doing so, get him a good receiver, a good uh, weapon he can use to either hand the ball off to or throw the ball to. You can do that by getting a first-round pick in this year's draft. So that's why, for me, getting the Jets who have picks 4 and 10 is the perfect uh, trade partner for the 49ers because you get a top-10 pick, which you don't have. And now, you, I think, personally, maybe this is just me. like I I try not to inject my feelings too much into how I think teams will act, but I'll be honest here. If you're the 49ers, do you really want to send them to the best... Uh, scenario possible where where Debo's gonna have a lot of success. I wouldn't. Like the 49ers, at least according to reports, want to keep Debo Samuel in San Francisco and want to pay him to stay in San Francisco. But Debo is the one that wants out. He is upset about the way he's used and I guess he is done playing running back. So if you're the 49ers, you exactly aren't the ones that are willing and ready to par with Debo. But if he if you grant his wish, I don't think John Lynch would and should want the best for Debo, frankly. So if you are John Lynch and the Jets come offer, you know, come calling for the number 10 overall pick, not only do I think that's the best pick you're going to do, like the Jets are not going to offer you number four. I don't think the Falcons are going to give you pick number eight, for example. number Pick number 10, I think, is going to be the highest you could possibly get for a player like Debo Samuel. But not only that, you're trading Debo to a worse situation. Like Debo, you want to leave? If I'm John Lynch and I'm Kyle Shannon, and Debo comes to me and says, I want out of here. I don't like the way I'm being used. Even though I was dynamic last year, I'm done. I'll be pissed. And you know what? Fine. Here's a dose of real medicine. You want to leave? Have fun with the Jets. We're trading to New York. You're going to the Jets. We have no idea what Zach Wilson's going to be. The Jets, maybe they're heading in the right direction. But as we know, for the last two decades, had just been a total dumpster fire. Debo, have fun there. Have fun going to Mike LaFleur's offense See if he can use you anywhere near as good as we, we used you the last few years. Let me, t- you know, see how your production is. I would feel extra petty if I'm John Lynch to where the Jets come calling 100%. I'm in. I'm in. Trade him to the Jets and say, Debo, enjoy New York. You think you had a good year? You enjoyed the success? We went to a Super Bowl and we went to another AFC, uh, NFC title game. Go have fun playing with the Jets. Go get your money, but go where a lot of players' careers go to rot. I wouldn't trade him to a good situation. I would not trade him to the Packers. No way in hell. Who I don't care how desperate the Packers are. I don't care if they give you three first-round picks, to be completely honest. I would not trade Debo Samuel to a team in the NFC, and specifically a team that is ready to win now. I don't want to see, if I'm John Lynch, and you don't want to trade Debo in the first place, but now you feel like you kind of have to, I don't want to see him have success. Call it petty. Call it, you know, being a, having a loser mentality. Sorry. That's the way I would operate. So, trade him to the Packers, I think, will be the best case scenario for Debo Samuel. He's going to get paid. He's going to be on in an instant Super Bowl contender. He's going to play with Aaron Rodgers. He'll have a lot of fun. Well, that not only hurts the 49ers because now you're going to see a guy you trade away have a lot of success, but also, too, you are in direct competition with the Packers. I know you beat him in the playoffs last year. I know you beat him in the playoffs with Devontae Adams last year, but you don't want to make a team you were in direct competition with any better. I don't think even going to the AFC and the Chiefs makes a lot of sense either for the um, for the 49ers. Even if they give you a first-round pick, it's in the 30s. I think they have picks either 29 and 30 or 30 and 31. I totally forget, but they have back-to-back late first-round picks that the Chiefs do. So you're picking late in the first round. Don't want to do that. You're sent to a situation where you can flourish. I don't think you want to do that. To me, the only team that makes sense for the 49ers to trade Debo Samuel to is the Jets. Maybe the Lions. The Lions won't give you pick number two. Maybe he'll get pick 32, but that is a situation where he will not have success, and that is for sure. In Detroit, you don't have to worry about Debo Samuel coming back to haunt you in the NFC if he's in Detroit. According to Rapport, the Lions are interested in Debo Samuel, but the Jets make the perfect and make the most sense for the 49ers. They have a premium pick. They can give you pick number 10. So that's the highest draft pick you're going to get. They have the salary cap space in order to sign Debo Samuel to an extension. They have the motivation to get Debo Samuel. So the price, I don't think they'll they'll budge at um, in terms of getting that wide receiver. And not to mention, again, you would feel pretty good if you're John Lynch and Kyle Shannon. If you send Debo Samuel to the Jets... He will not have nearly the same amount of success that he had in San Francisco. And the team around, you know, him with the Jets will not be as competitive or as good uh for the next few years. So you can feel good if you're John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan of saying, fine, Debo, you wanna, you know, try to force your way out. You wanna be upset that basically we helped transform you into this dynamic wide back player that you embraced, and now you basically want to turn on us and say, You're done. The, the exact skill set, the exact role that you played, that is helping you get twenty-five million dollars a year at least. Now you're saying you, you're done with that. You're done with us. You're done with that. Screw you, man. Go play with the Jets. Go tell me how Zach Wilson is. Go tell me how Robert Sala is a head coach. Go trust Joe Douglas. Go play with that defense. I and go to oh by the way, go to a loaded AFC where there's seven or eight teams right now that are. Super Bowl contenders that are way better than the Jets maybe ever will be with the talent they have on their roster right now. Good luck, Debo. Go have fun in New York. Go count your money. But also, remember, you will not have nearly the same amount of success either on the field in your individual production or in wins as team success that you're having right here in San Francisco. I would absolutely go full petty if I'm John Lynch and trade him to the Jets in a heartbeat. I would not trade him to the Packers. I would not trade him to the Chiefs. I would not trade him to the Colts because they don't first one pick this year. I would not even trade him to the Saints. because That's a good roster outside of Jameis Winston. You have Michael Thomas, you have you have Alvin Kamara. That's a you know, that's a team that is a quarterback away from being a legitimate Super Bowl contender. I would not send Debo there. Again, I would not send him anywhere in the NFC, maybe outside of the Lions. Just because you know there's no shot in hell they'll be competitive anytime soon. I would send him to the AFC. I think the Jets make all the sense in the world. You get the best return back in the draft, and you basically ensure Debo will not have as much success as he had in San Francisco, either individual-wise or team-wise. It may sound petty. It may sound low. It could be a loser mentality, if you will. But I think the what John Lynch and Kyle Shannon should do and will do is trade Debo to the Jets. We know the Jets want a receiver. They're interested in him for sure. They'll give him all the money Debo wants. They'll listen to his demands. Now, the Jets are in a spot of no leverage. So if Debo says I'm only playing receiver, the Jets are only going to play Debo receiver. So he'll get everything he wants, money-wise, role-wise. And the 49ers will get a top 10 pick and basically send uh, Debo to a team where a lot of free agent, a lot of draft picks, hopes go to die. Just the way, the way it's been. Maybe the Jets are actually going to turn this thing around But it's one of those things where I'll believe it when I see it. Jets right now are a mess. And if you want Debo, fine. Go enjoy the mess. Lay in the bed you made. That's what I would do on the 49ers. I think there's only one team is going to, and it is the New York Jets. So how about you? Where do you think Debo is getting traded to? Where is the landing spot for Debo Samuel? Is it the Jets? Is it The Packers, the Chiefs, where would you send Debo Samuel? And on the other side, I'm curious, if you're a team, if you're a fan of the other 31 teams in the NFL, do you want your team trading for Debo? Would you be okay with your team getting a first-round pick plus signing him to a lucrative contract extension to only be a wide receiver? Would you do it? Would you feel good about giving Debo Samuel a fat extension, only play receiver, and give a first-round pick? Love to hear your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, or YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, I do want to hit on the Celtics' tremendous defense, locking down Kevin Durant. Who deserves more credit? Is it the Celtics' defense, or is it just Kevin Durant, crap in the bed? We'll discuss when we return this into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. (laughs)
0: Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: Ryan Hickey, back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, game number two goes to Boston. They're up 2-0 in this series. The biggest reason for it, the biggest reason why so far the Celtics have won the first two games of the series is because of their defense. Their defense in smothering Kevin Durant, and limiting Kyrie Irving in game number two specifically, is the biggest reason why right now the Celtics are two games away from bouncing the Nets, and I think why they're going to win this series. A lot of blame, a lot of discussion is going to be about Kevin Durant today and how bad of a game he has, and how, you know, hey, he should be blamed for the net struggles, how he has to improve. Here's the reality. It's not Kevin Durant playing bad. It's the Boston defense suffocating Kevin Durant to a point where he's not comfortable and he's struggling in part of how Boston is defending him. Not just because he's missing shots. Right, this was, if game number two went differently, where we know in game number one he struggled, right? He was 9-24 from the field. Kevin Durant really was inefficient and it was very unlike Kevin Durant. If he bounced back in game number two, then we can chalk game number one up to what? Just a bad game, right? Everyone has bad games. I don't care if you're LeBron James, Kevin Durant, or Michael Jordan. Every single star NBA player, whether it's a postseason or regular season, has a bad game. It happens to everyone. No one's immune to it. But now that when we see Kevin Durant have uh, get shut down two games in a row, that's a pattern. And I'm going to credit the Boston Celtics defense for shutting down one of the best scores in the NBA and not Kevin Durant look like me in a CYO game. Not Kevin Durant forgetting how to shoot all of a sudden and just becoming a pedestrian scorer. Kevin Durant is not slumping. Kevin Durant is not forgetting how to score. He is getting shut down and all the praise goes to the Celtics defense. Because the strategy on how they're stopping uh, and shutting down Kevin Durant is clear. They're doing so in two ways. With physicality and with relentlessness. The Celtics have been in Kevin Durant's grill from the, 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 from the jump. From as soon as the ball was tipped up in Game 1 to when the buzzer sounded so far in Game 2 last night, the Celtics have been in KD's face. Whether he's at the top of the key, whether he's at the mid-range, whether he's on the free throw line, whether he's in the paint driving, hell, whether he's on the bench, whether he's in the hotel room, it doesn't matter. There's always a hand in Kevin Durant's face. There's always a body pressed up against him. There's a lot of bumping and grinding going on. It looks like you're at a club sometimes with how the defense is being physical and pushing Kevin Durant around. But the defense, the physicality of the Celtics defense right now is severely limiting Kevin Durant. It's getting to him. We really have not seen a team be this physical and this in Kevin Durant's face, but it's working to perfection because the physicality is throwing him off his game and the relentlessness from every single Celtics defender means there is no room for Katie to breathe. He is not an inch of space to get a shot off. He hasn't had an open look really all game long, it feels like. That constant relentless pressure along with the physicality from the Boston defense is the reason why Kevin Durant goes 9 of 24 from the field in game number one and 4 of 17 from the field in game number two. The strategy of pushing Kevin Durant around, being physical, even when the refs are punishing the Celtics for for their physicality, it's working. And you look at game number two last night. Kevin Durant attempted by himself 20 free throws by himself, went to line 20 times, made 18. So he scored basically 80% of his points on the free throw line. But the thing is, that strategy of making Kevin Durant beat at the free throw line is working to perfection so far. Even though the more fouls were called on the Celtics in game two compared to game number one, even though the physicality level was the same, the fact that Kevin Durant has had no space to get off any shots, he has always had a hand in his face, he's not had a clean look, he's always had every single shot be contested, he is not being able to get into a rhythm. So even though you're fouling Kevin Durant and giving him basically 18 free points on the free throw line, that physicality is paying off because when Kevin Durant is taking shots, he's not in rhythm and doesn't feel comfortable and that paid dividends in the second half of game two. Kevin Durant from the floor yesterday in the second half of game two when the Nets truly were trying to not blow and eventually did blow a 17 point lead in a game they absolutely needed. Kevin Durant, Arguably the season on the line. 0 of 10 from the field in half number two. 0 of 10. ESPN stats and info. That is the most field goal attempts without a make in one half from Kevin Durant his entire career. Career. He's never had an 0 of 10 shooting half before until last night. That is all because of the Celtics' physicality and their relentlessness. Like last night was historic from Kevin Durant. Because the one thing KD has been insane at and almost automatic at is bouncing back from bad performances. Kevin Durant has been in the NBA for 14 years. Kevin Durant has now played 153 postseason games. That sample size is massive. Kevin Durant has had plenty of bad games. Again, every single great player has a bad game. What makes great players great, though, is that they are able to follow up that bad game by taking over the next one, by bouncing back and becoming more efficient, scoring more points, and usually leading their team to victory. Well, the thing with last night is Kevin Durant had one of the rare moments in his career where he actually got worse coming off of a bad game. He actually got worse in the second game. Sixth time, just the sixth time in KD's career, he had two straight playoff games where he shot sub 38% from the floor and he got worse from game one to game number two. He was 9-24 from the field in game number one, 4-17 of from the field in game number two. We rarely, if ever, see Kevin Durant follow one bad game up with another. That happened last night, and that is because Kevin Dur- or the defense, I should say, of the Celtics was so relentless, was so swarming, they have not made KDB comfortable at all. And you look at any possession, go back to any so far of the first two games, look at any offensive possession from the Nets, and just watch Kevin Durant. Forget who has the ball. Just watch where Kevin Durant is. Whether he's off the ball, or whether he's taken up, whether he's coming off a screen. There is bodies pressed on him, hands in his face, and hands on his body. They are physical and they are relentless. And they are not giving Kevin Durant an ounce of space, an inch to breathe at all. And that is why so far he is having an historically bad postseason. And you look going 4-17 from the floor like he did last night. Those four field goal attempts he made were the second fewest field goal attempts made in a playoff game of his career. The only game worse, the only game he has made fewer than four field goals in one playoff game, and he's played the full game, it was back in 2011 against the Memphis Grizzlies when he was part of the OKC Thunder. One of the early years of Kevin Durant's career, he went 3 of 11 from the field. He has not had a game in which he is made less free, uh, field goals, even four, until last night. Kevin Durant is not missing all these shots and is not making only four field goals, his second fewest field goals on a playoff game of his career because he's in a slump, because he forgot how to shoot. He is struggling because this Celtics defense has been physical with him so far through the first two games, and they have been Relentless. Every single time KD has stepped on the floor. Hell, I think even when he's been on the bench, there's someone face guarding him and not allowing him to be comfortable get any space. There's been no space for Kevin Durant to operate. He's always had a physical, whether it's a body on him, a hand on him, a hand in the face. Every single shot he has has been contested. He's turned the ball over in part because the Celtics are pressed right up against him. They have identified a strategy of not giving Kevin Durant any space. And if you got to put him on the free throw line 20 times and have him make 18 like it happened in game two, so be it. It worked. Kevin Durant from the free throw line is not going to beat you. That is the strategy the Celtics used yesterday and it worked to perfection. And that is why the Celtics so far are up 2-0. That's why they're winning the series. And that is why Kevin Durant has had two of the worst playoff games back-to-back of his career. Physicality and relentlessness. Let's give the Celtics defense some credit because they absolutely deserve it. They have been phenomenal. They have been tremendous so far through these first two games. They're number one in defensive rating coming in, and they so far are showing out big time and locking down one of the premier scorers in the NBA. It has been fun to watch. It's been very impressive to watch. Credit to you, Boston. You deserve the credit. The Celtics defense deserves the credit for locking down one of the best scorers in the NBA so far through the first two games. I want to mention something here really quick. Hollywood Ramon writes on Twitter. You can find us at Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter is where you can comment on the live stream. We were talking earlier before why I think both the Bucks and the Suns are in big trouble when it comes to winning the finals because Chris Middleton right now has a sprained MCL and Devin Booker has a straight hamstring. We don't know the longevity of how long we'll be out. We'll know a little bit more about a timetable today from Chris Middleton when he gets an MRI and those results are revealed. But the reality is for me... If you have Chris Middleton, um, will, if he's severely limited or can't play in the postseason and go on the rest of the way, if you have Devin Booker, again, same thing, can't play or severely limited by his hamstring injury, the Suns and the Bucks are not making the finals. They're not winning the finals. They're not even making it to the finals. And I don't think if you're the Bucks, they're making it out of the second round. And I don't think the, the Suns are making it uh, out of the Western Conference Finals. The Bucks and the Suns are in big trouble here if they don't get healthy quick. I think the Suns can win their first round series against the Bucs or against the uh the Pelicans without Devin Booker. Now that's where Holly Ramone pushes back. He says Bucks and Suns are both losing in six with these injuries in the first round. So he thinks the Bulls are winning in six without Chris Middleton uh on there for the Bucks in the first round. He thinks the Pelicans are winning in six. Uh if the Suns don't have Devin Booker. I disagree with both. I think the Bucs are winning their first round series against the Bulls. I think the Suns are beating the Pelicans even if Chris Middleton can't play for the Bucs and Devin Booker can't play for the uh, Suns. Here's the reality. Now I can just mention, I don't think the Suns are making it to the finals or winning the finals if they don't have Devin Booker at 75% or healthier for came in play in general. And I don't think the Bucs are making it to the finals if they don't have Chris Middleton back and healthy on the court. I don't even think the Bucs are beating the Celtics around number two if they don't have Chris Middleton on the court healthy and effective. So for both of these teams, they're in massive trouble here and their stars don't get healthy quick. Now, the Suns have a little bit more leeway because the Suns, I think, will beat the Pelicans in round one without Devin Booker. I think they'll beat either the Mavericks or the Jazz in round two without Devin Booker. If I'm Phoenix, I am taking my sweet time with Devin Booker. The timeline, the target date I have for his return is the Western Conference Finals. I don't think the Suns are beating either the Grizzlies or the Warriors if... Devin Booker is not playing or severely compromised by his hamstring injury. As you know, hamstring injuries are very fickle. It's easy to get re-injured and easy to tweak it and make the injury worse. It's a mild hamstring strain right now from the Suns. I am keeping Devin Booker out until the Western Conference Finals. I'm being extra cautious and extra safe because right now you can win this series and the next one without your star player. I don't think they can beat a Red Hot Warriors team or a very gritty and tough Grizzlies team. Uh, in the Western Conference Finals if they don't have Devin Booker. So that should be the number one priority for the Suns right here is make sure Devin Booker's hamstring is healthy and won't be an issue when he returns. I'll be mortified and very scared to put him back uh, in the lineup anytime soon. As you know, again, those hamstring injuries are very easy to re-injure and you don't want Devin Booker when he's back on the court thinking about it. So i would be extra cautious even if he's clear to play, right? Right now, all we know is that games three and four are doubtful according to Woj. And they're not even officially ruled out yet. So in theory, I guess he could return sooner rather than later. I would be extra cautious, play it extra safe from the Suns, and take my very dear time in, uh, in getting Devin Booker back. Because the last thing you need right now if you're the Suns is to make this injury worse and lose Devin Booker in the playoffs. Because if you don't have him for the Western Cowboys Finals, or if you don't have him for the Finals, you're not winning. The hamstring health should be the number one priority of the Suns. And that's why I would take my time for the Bucks. They just need for pray uh, pray for good news. They need to pray to God for good news about Chris Middleton because I don't think they're getting out of the second round. They're not beating the Celtics. Celtics are only going to get healthier with the return of Robert Williams, most likely at some point in the second round of the playoffs. If you don't have Chris Middleton or have a very uh, compromised Chris Middleton because he's hurt, that is bad, bad, bad news for the Bucks. I think they're in big trouble um, then because um, they can't can't beat the Celtics shorthand. They can't. So this is going to be a massive day for Milwaukee going forward um, to see what the diagnosis, what the timeline is for Chris Milton in his spring MCL. And if you're the Suns, take your time with Devin Booker. Don't rush him back, because if he's rushed back, your season's over. And he gets hurt again, your season is over. I just want to quickly hit on one last thing before we wrap up on the Ryan Hickey Show, and that is the future of Debo Samuel. If the 49ers do grant Debo Samuel his request and do trade him, there's only one team I think the 49ers trade Debo Samuel to. It's the New York Jets. The New York Jets, I think they're the only team Debo is going to get traded to because they have the draft capital, they have the salary cap space, they have the motivation to get Debo. They have the number 10 overall pick, which I think is the best first round pick the 49ers would get in a Debo Samuel trade. So take that. You don't first pick on your own. Get a top 10 pick. And right away, replace Debo Samuel with a talented player for Trey Lance to work with. You got to give Trey Lance some sort of weapon to throw the ball to. You can't trade away one of the most dynamic weapons in all the NFL and give him no help. No supplement of help there. You need to have Trey Lance to give him a chance. Uh, drafting a receiver, you could do so with the number 10 overall pick. It is very important. And I think that's at least draft pick wise works out perfectly for the 49ers. But not to mention, if I'm John Lynch, I'm pissed about this Debo Samuel trade request. The 49ers, according to reports, don't want to trade Debo and were willing to pay him the money that he wants to stay in San Francisco. So if he's saying, screw you guys, Debo is to the 49ers, I know your system helped get me paid, but now I'm out and now I don't want to do what to help make me successful anymore. If I'm John Lynch, I'm not feeling happy about it and I'm not rewarding Debo Samuel by trading him to a team like the Packers, trading him to a team like the Chiefs or the Ravens or the Saints, teams that he can have success with. I would turn to the Jets and basically say, you got what you wish for. Have fun in New York. Get your money. Don't have a lot of success on the field. And good luck now going to a dumpster fire organization that for the last two decades has been unable to figure it out. I would take my chances with the New York Jets not being able to figure it out in in a conference that is better than ever. I would say, Debo, fine. Go have fun in New York. Go deal with that circus with the Jets. Instead of going to a Super Bowl contender like the Packers will have instant success, but the Chiefs will have great success, the Ravens will have success. I would honestly feel petty if I'm John Lynch and not want to trade him to a situation where he can have immediate success right away. So that's why for me, the Jets make all the sense in the world. You can get the number 10 overall pick. You get a first-round pick, you get help for for Trey Lance in the draft, and you send Debo Samuel to a situation that is way worse than what he was just in with the 49ers. Make him rethink all of a sudden wanting to leave a Super Bowl contending team in the 49ers to go to the Jets. To get paid, to just be a wide receiver, but go, go play for the Jets who are most likely to be in third place this year at best in a loaded AFC. Have fun in New York, Debo. We won't miss you. See you later. Hugs and kisses, John Lynch. That's what I would do. It's petty, sure, but if you're if you're frustrated, you don't want to see the guy you trade away have instant success and always be reminded of that trade. So that'll do it this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I appreciate everyone who tuned in and made us a part of your Thursday morning. It's a very busy and loaded Thursday morning, so we do appreciate you joining us here for a little bit on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We will be back on Monday. We'll get you set and ready to go for the NFL draft one week away. One week away from today is the first run of the draft. So we'll get you all set up and ready to go with a draft preview show. Plus, obviously, hit on some NBA playoff action as well on Monday. So between now and then, have a great, tremendous, fun weekend. As always, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you on Monday right here on the Worldwide Sports Sports Network.